0: i'm joel parker
1: and i'm susan moran this is how on earth the show that makes you smarter today is tuesday august 16th 2011
0: coming up one plutonian moon two plutonian moons three plutonian moons four how many moons does pluto have it may surprise us with many more
1: And we talk with Harvey Locke from the Wild Foundation about conservation and the Nature Needs Half campaign. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: Next time you get a tattoo, will it be a dragon or a Celtic cross or a tribal armband? How about a functional electronic circuit? In the current issue of the journal Science, dae Hyong Kim of the University of Illinois and collaborators report on epidermal electronics. These are circuits that are put directly on the skin. They can act as monitors to measure electrical activity produced by the heart, brain, and skeletal muscles, but flex with the skin like an electronic tattoo. Now, why would you want to do this? Well, in current clinical work, medical diagnostic machines need to be hooked up to patients with wires connected to sensors that are often large pads that are glued to the skin. This is uncomfortable and can cause skin sores and rashes and can make movement difficult. But now the electronic skin recently developed by Kim and colleagues can help solve these problems by allowing to monitor uh, more simply, more reliably, and uninterrupted. These devices were made through transfer printing fabrication processes that create flexible versions of semiconductors that adhere directly to the skin without glue. Power can be provided by small solar cells and wireless coils. These devices also would be useful when unobtrusive sensors are important, such as monitoring sleep apnea and in neonatal care and regions of the body that previously proved difficult to fit with sensors may now be monitored, including, for example, the throat, to observe muscle activity during speech. The throat experiment was discussed in the paper and yielded enough precision for the research team to differentiate words in vocabulary and even control a voice-activated video game interface with greater than 90% accuracy.
1: The head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Jane Lubchenko, We'll kick off a nine-day trip to Colorado, California, and Alaska with a town hall discussion at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science this Wednesday, August 17th at 10 a.m. Clayton Sandell, the correspondent for ABC Denver, will moderate the discussion, and the event is free and open to the public. Dr. Libchenko, a Colorado native, will focus on NOAA's contribution to Colorado and the whole country, especially at a time when hurricanes, tornadoes, and other extreme weather events are posing serious challenges for communities. NOAA's mission is to understand and predict changes in the earth's environment from the depths of the ocean to the surface of the sun. It also works to conserve and manage coastal and marine resources across the country. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science is located at 2001 Colorado Boulevard in Denver.
0: And you could return to the museum on Thursday evening at 6:30 to enjoy the Science Lounge, where science, wine, and chocolate blend well together. This Thursday's Lounge is a Indiana Jones-inspired evening of archaeology. You could be awarded a Geek Cup and a Shirley Temple of Doom cocktail. The museum hosts the Science Lounge every third Thursday of the month. It costs $8 for members and $10 for non-members. For more information, go to www.dmns.org and click on Learn to find the Science Lounge events. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. If you're the kind of person who's still unhappy about Pluto's demotion to dwarf planet, fear not. Astronomers are well aware that Pluto has plenty to teach us, and they are hot on the trail of that small, icy world. For instance, late last month, astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope announced that Pluto has not one, not three, but four moons the latest one so tiny that it could easily fit inside Boulder County. Now keep in mind, Pluto is three and a half billion miles away, so discovering a moon this small is actually quite a big deal. The researchers who found the new moon are making observations in support of NASA's New Horizons spacecraft, which is en route to Pluto and will arrive in 2015. It will be the first spacecraft to visit the Pluto system and to explore the mysterious region beyond Pluto's orbit known as the Kuiper Belt. How on Earth's Ted Burnham recently met with Alan Stern, principal investigator on New Horizons, to talk about what the discovery means for the mission. He began by asking Alan to describe the object that his team found.
2: We discovered a new moon of Pluto uh, at the um, end of June, in the beginning of July, using the Hubble Space Telescope. It's a small moon uh, that orbits between two of Pluto's other moons. It orbits between the moons Nix and Hydra. And how does it compare to those other moons? Pluto's largest moon is called Charon, and its diameter is 1,200 kilometers. So it's about exactly as wide as the state of Colorado. And Nix and Hydra are much smaller. They're about 100 kilometers, so they're like... Bigger than Jefferson County, but not a whole lot. Uh, And this new moon, P4, it doesn't really have a name yet, just a designation, the fourth moon of Pluto, um, is smaller still. Probably only um, the size of a small county in Colorado, much smaller than Jefferson County.
3: So these are very small rocks uh, out there, very far away from us. How did we find them?
2: We looked with the best gun in the world. It's called the Hubble Space Telescope. And making long exposures, we spotted this. And in fact, um, this could have been done uh, years ago, uh, but Hubble's also very, very competitive. And for a long time, we proposed to look for new moons of Pluto, and those proposals were rejected. The first time that we got time on the Hubble, we found Nixon Hydra in eight minutes flat. And then we went back to look a little bit harder, actually for rings around Pluto, and found this new moon, P4, on the first try. So you are the principal investigator
3: on the New Horizons spacecraft, which should be arriving at the Pluto system in 2015. Are you modifying that mission uh, to, to study this new object, the P4 moon? That we
2: yeah, have? we're adding uh, observations to uh, map this new moon, to better refine its orbit, to determine its shape, its color, its composition, uh, and to look harder for more moons. How do the, uh, the Hubble
3: images contribute to the planning? What exactly do you find in these images that tell you what, what you're going to do when the spacecraft well, gets there?
2: First, they tell us uh, uh, that the, the moon exists, which we didn't know before. And then from making multiple images of it over time, it's just a point of light, but we can trace its orbit out. So then we know where to point our cameras. Also, we can measure its brightness, and from its brightness, we can set our exposure times on the spacecraft. And we have a pretty good idea of... Um, what size range it's in, from just those measurements already. And that's enough to let us go ahead and plan the observations. What do you hope to learn when when we get there? Well, they're going to tell us a lot about this new class of planets called dwarf planets. In 50 years of space exploration, we've never sent a mission to reconnoiter a dwarf planet yet. We're finding the Pluto system to be incredibly rich with satellites. Uh, we launched thinking they were just Pluto and Charon. Now we know that there's Pluto, Sharon, Nix, Hydra, and whatever we name P4, plus maybe more. (laughs) I'm telling people you're getting five objects for the price of two, and it might even go higher. Um, I think what we want to learn primarily is um, as much as we can from this first example of this new class of planet, dwarf planet. Do you
3: have any idea what they're like? Do you know what to expect?
2: It's been a long time since we've been to a new planet. But every time in the 60s, 70s, 80s that a spacecraft went to a planet for the first time, we had our doors blown off. No one expected Mercury to be essentially an all-core planet or Mars to have river valleys or Io to have volcanoes um, and many, many other kinds of discoveries that Venus would be a toxic waste dump. Those kinds of things just so radically changed our view that the smartest way to go after this first reconnaissance of a dwarf planet is to just go in with your eyes wide open with the best sensors without any preconceived notions and let nature tell us in the pictures and the spectra and the other kinds of data that we'll get what it's all about. And a lot of guesswork about what you should expect will probably backfire. We already know that the Kuiper belt is littered with dwarf planets in addition to these much smaller objects. Um, And uh, we already have information that uh, Other dwarf planets have moons. Uh, Other dwarf planets have ices on their surface. Um, We're looking for atmospheres like Pluto has. Uh, But that's a developing story.
3: Do you think there's any chance of finding life out there?
2: Not with New Horizons. That would be very unlikely since we don't carry any sensors to detect life, and we don't land or even orbit. We just fly by. Um, But whether there's life um, or not in any given locale is an open bet. Uh, well, one of the things we've really learned in planetary science is, is that our preconceived notions from the earth are usually very naive. Uh, they're limited by exp- our experience and there are good reasons to believe from the geophysics that Pluto has an ocean on the inside with liquid water. And if that's actually the case, uh, then, um, you could imagine that there could be, uh, an ecosystem there. We just don't know. Um, Hopefully, New Horizons will help inform us about whether that ocean is real or not, um, and then we'll go from there. It, it sounds like uh, the, this new
3: class of dwarf planets is is set to to just blow up, and we're gonna we're gonna find
2: tons of them out there. So our our solar system family is gonna get a lot bigger, isn't it? It is, and we already know that uh, the dwarf planets are the most populous class of planet in the solar system, probably in the galaxy. And that's one of the most exciting things about New Horizons is that. Um, Here we are going not just uh, uh, to planet Pluto, but actually going to a whole new class of planet, which is uh, so populous uh, that it's bound to inform us very broadly about things in our own solar system and indeed the whole galaxy. That was Alan Stern,
0: Principal Investigator of the New Horizons mission, talking about a tiny new moon that was recently discovered around Pluto. New Horizons will visit that moon and the rest of the Pluto system in 2015, so stay tuned. Thanks to Ted Burnham for that report. You can hear an extended version of his interview with Alan Stern at our website, howonearthradio.org.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So, back on planet Earth, scientists are discovering new life forms, new unique species, often, but at a rate that is far eclipsed by species die off. The cause of this vanishing act is largely us. As humans tear down forests and other wild nature and overfish the oceans to make room for new development and agriculture, climate change is also accelerating the rate of species extinction. Among the efforts worldwide to protect wilderness and nature so wild animals, from bison to grizzlies to cheetahs, can survive, is a Boulder based nonprofit called the Wild Foundation. Harvey Locke is the organization's vice president for conservation strategy. A Canadian, he was named by Time magazine in 1999 as one of Canada's leaders for the 21st century. Among his global credentials, he helped launch the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative several years ago. Y2Y, as the initiative is dubbed, aimed to create a continuous 2,000-mile corridor of sorts for wildlife from Yellowstone National Park in the U.S. to Yukon in northern Canada. More recently, Mr. Locke oversees a global campaign called Nature Needs Half. He joins us in the studio to talk about that campaign and the science behind wildlife preservation targets. So, Harvey, welcome to the show. Thank you. First sort of big picture, maybe talk about where are we now in terms of species extinction versus discovery and preservation globally?
4: Well, if you think of the world when I was born, and you think of the world today, the transformation has been shocking, and the number of species that are in trouble has grown exponentially during that time. One of the groups that has the most trouble are the predators, whether they be in the ocean like tuna or sharks, whether they be on land like wolves or grizzly bears or tigers. Um... The the species that require more, the most space and that prey on other large mammals are the ones that are really in trouble. And, you know, we have a very significant challenge as humans in the 21st century, and that is, are we going to let the rest of nature live along with us, or are we going to be telling our grandchildren about the cool things that used to exist and are all dead?
1: And should we be concerned mostly about the predator species, and, and why is that?
4: Well, one of the reasons we look at predator species and other large animals that are big grazers are very important, too. So the aurochs in Europe that went extinct in 500 years ago or the elephants in Africa. What does the
1: aurochs look like?
4: The aurochs is the predecessor of the domestic cow. Right. And actually, there's a cool effort to backbreed and bring it back. But um, the, all these large ranging mammals, be they grazers or predators, um, require intact ecosystems. And they require space, and they require tolerance from humans. And they also enrich our lives in immeasurable ways. And there's nothing more exciting than seeing one of these large mammals uh, live. It just touches your soul. And so uh, we believe that we have a responsibility as humans to live in a way that allows those things to continue to live with us the way they have for the entire history of the human species.
1: So on the Nature Needs Half campaign, maybe describe what, precipitated it? And then what, what's the science behind this 50% target?
4: Well, in simplest terms, um, the world was in a very wild condition 100 years ago. Um, the humans did not overwhelm the tropical rainforest. They did not overwhelm boreal environments. Uh, we had overwhelmed certain bi- uh, biomes, but really, the world was in pretty wild condition. Even after World War II, the world was in a very wild condition. And we have accelerated the destruction of nature for our own purposes enormously in the last 50 years. And through that time, a science emerged called conservation biology, which became a bit like medicine. Its purpose was to assess what we could do to avoid things dying off as opposed to documenting them dying off, which is what traditional biology was doing. And scientists in the last 20 years have thought a lot about that. And the paper after paper, when you ask... What would it take to keep life on Earth with us, all of life on Earth with us? And the, tar- the answer is coming out of papers from all over the world. There's always at least half. We need to protect at least half, and it needs to be interconnected so that the stuff can move around and move upslope with the seasons and also adapt to climate change by moving north or south, depending on the hemisphere.
1: So at least half of a habitat of certain species, or at least half at least,
4: ha- at least half of everything. So... Uh, You know, the idea would not be that you said, well, we've got all of Antarctica, so we don't need to worry about the California coast. That's Mm -hmm. not the point. But at least half of every system, essentially, is needed if all the ingredients of that system are going to continue to thrive with us. And, you know, what does that number mean? Well, in Boulder County, over half of Boulder County is protected. So it's not like it's a hard thing to do, and this is a pretty prosperous place. Uh, what it isn't is interconnected, and there's some interesting work being done with the recent bond issue to try to help with the connectivity. Right. But Boulder County is actually a place where we're already ahead of the curve on at least half, but we don't have all of our species. So, you know, uh, I read, interestingly, that Boulder is a name for the place where the bison graze on top, which is a reference to Walker Ranch. And mm-hmm. We haven't yet restored bison in Boulder, although I personally think
1: it would be fun. A lot of mountain there. bikers, but not too many bison. <laughs> So you say Boulder County in terms of habitat restoration, preservation is doing pretty well. What about all of Colorado and the broader West, which speaks to the nature well, needs half? Well, interestingly,
4: here? Colorado is a, a place that was very badly beat up 100 years ago. And there's a good case to be made that it's actually getting better ecologically. And at the same time, there are pressures coming in that, that transform that. So it's it's a very dynamic environment. But, you know, recently links were restored to Colorado and one of those links bred for a few seasons in the San Juan Mountains and then decided to return to Canada where it came from and was found north of Banff National Park. That and they are actually
1: ex- pretty safely restored in Colorado well, now? Well, I thought it was, a, it was a few here and there.
4: Well, the first introduction didn't go well and the second one's gone better. And recently a wolverine wandered down from, uh, from the Yellowstone area and found its way into northern Colorado. And so Colorado's kind of, uh, I like to draw an analogy uh, The Yellowstone to Yukon system, which is this big chunk of wild nature that most people in the world have heard of, where we have these big national parks, and we still have grizzly bears and wolves, which is a place I work on a lot. And
1: this is what you started over a decade ago, right? Yeah,
4: in 1993, a bunch of us got Mm -hmm. together and kicked this idea off, and it's now become quite well known. And the idea is to keep the landscape intact for all the living things that belong there. Um, That system is, you know, we can think about it two ways. We can think about it as the last place on Earth where we save all these things, or... We can think about it as an example of the first of the next. And for me, I prefer to be in that positive frame where why isn't all the world like that? I'm from that area. I was born in that area. And it's kind of nice. And Colorado was kind of an interesting place to have that conversation. Like, Should we be happy that Colorado used to have this and used to have that? Or should we be thinking that Colorado ought to be intact and you can even think about it as sort of a metaphor. With if Yellowstone to Yukon is Italy, Colorado is Sicily. It's this little island <laughs> off the toe with this gap in between. Not politically, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I've, I've, you know, it's very interesting to be a Canadian and watch things like the healthcare debate. And, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so maybe uh, anyway, I'll move on. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, I mean this is a wonderful place, Colorado. It's very rich biologically. It's very beautiful. Um, there are people who've got efforts like uh, to, to do something called the Spine of the Continent, which is something the Wildlands Network has advanced, and there's a group here called, recently renamed Rocky Mountain Wild, that's trying to work on these ideas. And um, here in Boulder, there's, as you know, a lot of passion, a lot of effort has gone into protecting wild nature. So there's a lot to work with. Um, but we like to think that we need a movement around the world. and. We've incubated it here in Boulder called Nature Needs Half, which is let's talk about what nature needs, not just what we want, but what nature needs. And then, of course, we will be richer for nature meeting her needs. And perhaps it might even be very important to our survival in the long term if we keep natural systems functioning.
1: Can there be an argument, especially many wonder at a time of economic duress around the country? I mean, maybe some are more sensitive here in the Boulder-Denver area, but... When you say, let's think of what nature wants, I mean, so many would say, yeah, I'll think about that some other time. I'm Mm -hmm. talking my own economic survival now. So are there really science-based arguments for how nature, you know, charismatic species notwithstanding, yeah. can, can actually serve us economically and otherwise? Or should we even be asking that question?
4: Oh, it's fair to ask. You know, uh, we don't know how to make air. We don't know how to make water. And we don't know how to make food. Uh, we know how to manipulate those things, but we can't make them. They come from nature. And nature is an interacting whole. There are no pieces we can live without. And I view the debt crisis, which is this week's preoccupation, as an extension of the environmental crisis. It's the same thing. It's short-term mm-hmm. thinking, short-term greed, spend, 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 accumulate now, don't worry about who's paying the bill, and uh, don't manage our demands or desires in any long-term kind of an interest. And that's the problem with the environment. And we need a more positive frame of mind. When, when we talk about nature needing half, that's a way of talking about a relationship and how we live in relationship with the world. And It gives me hope.
1: (laughs) And um, on the hope front, I know you were just back from a pretty wild horseback trip up in Canada. Give us some examples of what you're seeing. What are some of the some progress that's been made on the Yellowstone to Yukon and the Nature Needs Half?
4: Well. You know, we just recently made a 9-million-acre a national park in Canada called Nahani National Park, which is three-and-a-half times the size of Yellowstone. It was just done two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, two weeks ago, we closed a deal up in northwestern Montana to buy a key parcel of land in conjunction with a, a land trust called Vital Ground uh, to, that's a key corridor for bears, even though it's only fewer than 100 acres. It's a, the place where they'll move between two blocks of public land. Uh, where there's highway overpass systems being built, and we could build them in Colorado. Uh, there have allow- been some
1: attempts, haven't there, in Colorado on yeah, I-70? Well,
4: there's a big discussion on I-70 and an encouraging one, and we really hope it gets done because in Banff Park, where there's a highway of equivalent size, they're proven to be very effective and on Highway Number 1, the Trans-Canada Highway, and we should, you know, I don't see any reason why Colorado is a second rate. Um, I think it's a great place, and we should be living to the same standards as things further north, and we could get a lot done.
1: Thanks very much. Hope to have you on the show again. That was Harvey Locke of the Wild Foundation.
3: That's
0: all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran.
1: This week's show producer and engineer was Joel Parker.
0: Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Patty Smith. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there and through iTunes. Do you have any questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.